0: Morning, I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, May 4th. What's going on with the sports arena property? We'll have more on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. About 200 people turned out for a rally in downtown San Diego yesterday evening. It was organized by groups that support abortion rights. It was in response to the Supreme Court's leaked draft majority opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. I'm mad and I'm frustrated and I'm ready to do whatever it takes. Another rally protesting the potential ruling is planned for today at 6 p.m. at the Hall of Justice in downtown San Diego. Amazon says it'll add 2,500 jobs across Santa Monica, Irvine, and San Diego. More than 700 of those jobs will be in San Diego. According to the company, the new jobs will include positions in software development, game design, user experience, HR, finance, and IT. To make room for its San Diego expansion, Amazon has signed a lease for office space at the UTC. It's expected to open next year. San Diego City Councilwomen Jennifer Campbell and Marnie Von Wilpert said Tuesday that they intend to fund a conservatorship and treatment unit for homeless individuals. They say they'll make it part of their budget priorities for the next fiscal year. The unit would find housing and treatment programs for unsheltered individuals who are unable to care for their own needs and who have no family or friends to look out for them. The councilwomen want to allocate $500,000 for it. The city will begin its budget review process today. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need.
1: Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news events and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it.
2: This is Port of Entry.
1: The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcasts and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again.
0: San Diego is getting closer to choosing a developer to build much needed housing on the sports arena property, but KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says housing for the middle class doesn't seem to count for much.
3: One of the proposals the city is considering promises to build 1,100 affordable homes for middle-income households, far more than any of its competitors. But that may not matter. State law requires the city to pick the project with the most low-income housing, even if it has fewer homes overall. Mayor Todd Gloria says the city is in close contact with state officials
1: on what's required. What we've received uh, is nothing but favorable feedback. Um, they're very excited about what we're doing here. Um, and my, game, my aim is to stay on that track um, to deliver uh,
3: a project that the state can support. State housing officials rejected the city's last attempt to redevelop the sports arena because those plans did not adequately prioritize low-income housing. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News.
0: Change could be coming for two transit stations in Carlsbad. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne has more.
4: The North County Transit District is taking bids for the redevelopment of Carlsbad's transit stations. The Carlsbad Village and Poinsettia Station each have more than 10 acres of land that could potentially be reimagined to be mixed-use developments. Tracy Foster is with NCTD. We, we think that um, as part of this highest and best use analysis that the Carlsbad Village site could yield between 300 and 400 residential units and approximately 140 at the poinsettia site. Um, and then some commercial uses mixed in there as well. The transit district owns the land and would lease it to developers. Proposals from developers will be turned in by July. The transit agency hopes to start negotiations with the selected party by November. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News.
0: In a lab at UC San Diego, scientists have discovered a gene marker for Alzheimer's disease. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge says this means researchers can better predict Alzheimer's and maybe find a path to a cure.
2: The study looks back on 15 years of blood testing and observation of hundreds of people over 65, and it has found a clear connection between an overactive gene and the development of Alzheimer's disease. UCSD bioengineering professor Sheng Zhang says the gene and serine, the nutrient it produces, play a key role in brain development. But in older people, overactivity of the gene seems to cause damage. So our hypothesis is that oversupply of... Serum makes neurons too active for too long a time and thus uh, become toxic. And that may help create conditions that lead to Alzheimer's. Zhang says ongoing experiments could help researchers find a way to tone down the overactive gene in hopes that will block the development of the disease. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News.
0: Next fall, the San Diego Unified School Board will have two new student members. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has more from the young man who was the first student representative on the board.
3: Zachary Patterson graduates from University City High School in a few weeks, leaving a legacy as the first ever student member of the San Diego Unified Board of Education. He campaigned for the job starting as a middle school student. Since October 2019, when he was elected, he's supported COVID protections and mandatory vaccinations. He's also developed mental health programs, On his way out, he has convinced the board that two student members are better than one.
2: We have a lot of issues in our district, and that's no secret, but we're not going to solve them by complacency. We're not going to solve them by people that don't want to speak up. We're going to solve them by students saying, I'm willing to make the system a little bit better than I found it.
3: Applications from high school students are now being accepted on the district's website. M.G. Perez, KPBS News.
0: Coming up, how do you get your household to zero waste? We'll have more on that and what's at stake for the Navy with the upcoming Top Gun Maverick. That's next, just after the break.
2: and donate what you can, all right? Thanks.
0: Each week, the majority of us fill a plastic garbage bag with waste that is hauled away to the landfill. We throw away everything from non-recyclable plastics to food waste and plenty of other things, but not Frederica Siren's family. They aim not to create any trash. Frederica Siren is the author of a new book called A Practical Guide to Zero Waste for Families. She spoke to KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview.
4: So tell us exactly what zero waste means. Zero waste just means that we're making conscious decisions to not produce any waste. So for us, we live by the simple rule that if we can't compost it, recycle it, or reuse it, we just won't bring it into the home. We will refuse it. And what inspired you to start reducing the amount of waste you throw away? Well, so I've been an environmental writer for my whole adult life, so over 20 years. And, and I would write articles about uh, climate change and holding uh, companies responsible. But once I became a mom, 15 years ago to my first child, I realized that climate change was actually an issue that was going to affect my children. And because this is their future and I want to save it for them because I want to give my kids everything. And that includes a perfect, nice, healthy planet to live on. So I started to think more about personal action, individual action, how important that actually is. It actually makes a huge difference. I do believe that companies and And government needs to also be held responsible and help out. But I do believe that individual action is really important. So I started to just small step-by-step reducing our waste. So this was a journey that took us 15 years to get where we are today, zero waste. And it's slow and sometimes painful journey. But we got to the end where we are now producing no waste at all.
2: Wow. And so it's one thing to make that lifestyle change, but you decided to go ahead and write a book. So, what made you decide to write that book on living a zero waste lifestyle?
4: So, when I started 15 years ago, there were no zero waste movement yet. They weren't even any zero waste swaps. So, everything I had to figure out on my own. And I think this is why it took so long for us to get to zero waste. So, this is the guide that I wish I had 15 years ago. I so desperately wanted a guide to something to just Give me the tips, the recipes, the ideas. I had to find a little bit here and there and figure out on my own. So I want to write a book to help other people, because I firmly believe that majority of people actually want to reduce their own waste. They just don't know how to. They don't know where to begin. And this is the guide to help them, because it is something for everyone. And it's not about becoming waste. It is about reducing one small carbon footprint one step at a time.
2: And you know, what are some tips that you suggest in your book to help guide someone who wants to transition to a zero waste lifestyle?
4: So there's a lot of tips. For example, once we became zero waste and we did a trash audit, we actually realized that one third of our waste was food waste. Uh, and this was just simply food sometimes had gone bad because, you know, I didn't store the food the proper way or I forgot about food. So we really tackled food waste by reducing it, making sure that we ate our leftovers. We only shop when we needed to and stuff like that. So that is a tip to really go over your own food waste or your own food and just making sure you're storing everything the proper way and reducing it that way. So that is a great tip that's in there in my book. And then the other one is just, how can you actually go shopping without waste? What places can you go find food that doesn't contain packaging? And if you are not able to shop in bulk, well, there are still options. You can still choose a carbo box, which can be recycled over a plastic bag. And these are the small, small tips that actually makes a huge difference.
2: And what are some of the things that your family does on a day-to-day basis to reduce waste? You touched on this, but what are some small, small things?
4: Well, small things is like, instead of plastic toothbrushes, we use bamboo toothbrushes that when we're done with them, we can throw them into our compost. Or we do our laundry with soap nuts instead of laundry detergent, uh, which also when we're done with those, we can throw them also into the compost. We hang dry our clothes outside instead of using the dryer, which reduces a lot of uh, impact on the clothes, makes them last longer, but also reduces your uh, use of electricity.
0: And that was Frederica Siren, author of A Practical Guide to Zero Waste for Families. She was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Top Gun Maverick is set to premiere in San Diego today. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says the Navy is banking on the film Striking Gold Twice for Naval Aviation.
2: I'm out at Naval Base North Island in front of a row of F-18s. Apart from Tom Cruise, the fighter planes are probably the real stars of Top Gun Maverick. Captain Brian Ferguson has been a Navy pilot for 28 years.
3: So this is the Engineering Depot, the Fleet Readiness Center. So this is where airplanes come for major maintenance overhaul.
2: Ferguson was the Navy's technical advisor on the film. He was a fan of the original.
3: So my career uh, essentially started in 1986 when I saw the the first movie. And I said, I want to do that. I want to land on ships, in a jet, and go into combat.
2: So we went in right after college, when the original film was made, Top Gun, or U.S. Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, was in San Diego, when Miramar was a naval air station. The actual Top Gun moved to Fallon Naval Air Station back in the 1990s, but the filmmakers wanted to keep the new movie set in San Diego. Ferguson breaks it down.
3: So Top Gun is acknowledged universally to be Naval Air Station Fallon about it. They bring all these best of the best of the best in the storyline down to San Diego to train here. Would we do that? No, we wouldn't. We would train at Fallon, but, you know, to get to get the beaches, There's better beaches here than in the deserts of nevada Uh, so there was a little bit of artistic license there and it doesn't bother me at all
2: there was a huge lag time from when filmmakers were actually filming in and around san diego and the premiere this week
3: we started filming uh, october of 2018 i think so four years ago covid put a a bit of a, a pause on it
2: the original film was a recruiting boon for the navy This time around, the Navy went all out. It opened its doors to Paramount, providing F-18s and pilots. The filmmakers were allowed to shoot on the USS Abraham Lincoln and the USS Roosevelt, which were both based in San Diego at the time. Here's Ferguson.
3: We started filming here along the runway using a Fleet Readiness Center airplane, Uh, and then we moved on to various shooting locations to include two aircraft carriers, five bases, studios, Los Angeles,
2: When the filmmakers decided the real fighter pilot bars were too small, the Navy let them build one on base at North Island.
3: They loved them, but they weren't big enough to put cameras in and back out and get the angles they wanted. So being movie makers, they just built an entire huge complex on the beach at uh, at Breakers Beach.
2: Ferguson insists the Navy build the studios for everything. Earl Wedderbrook is a retired Marine colonel. He's now a pilot at San Diego Sky Tours. I caught up with him for a Zoom interview in the company's hangar before he was about to fly.
4: This was just in the hangar, getting some maintenance done on it right now. So we do uh, aviation tours. At the time the first
2: movie came out, he was stationed in Yuma, Arizona. Uh,
4: with the Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadrons, kind of the Marine version of Top Gun, if you will. And I knew a lot of the guys that flew in the first movie. Of course, we gave him a ration of
2: a hard time. Wederbrick says he saw the surge in interest back in 1986 with his own eyes, just going out to the bar at Miramar at the time. He says it's hard to imagine the new film having the same impact.
4: At the time, I mean, it was kind of the Cold War. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't much going on. Uh, a lot of patrols. There wasn't, there was no combat. You know, the, the thing's going to be interesting now is we've just gone through 30 years of uh, essentially continuous combat in the Mideast. The audience is going to be a little different.
2: People watching this movie are now much more aware of the reality of war. Still. The Navy is banking on Maverick to boost the image of naval aviation one last time. Steve Walsh, KPBS News.
0: And that's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at KPBS.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.